Alrighty, hello and welcome to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm your host, Adam A. Donaldson. Joining me today is... Tim Phillips. Tim, happy Oscar weekend uh, as, as we're recording, of course. Uh, this, the Oscars will be long since forgotten by the time this goes to air. <laughs> yeah. This is airing afterwards, so <laughs> just wanted to say I was really disappointed. With, and that was a really good speech, too. I really like the speech that that person made. Yeah, can you believe for one? That's, I, I can't believe they, you know, they, they, they took the Oscar. It's really, um, anyway. <laughs> oh man, in that monologue? Wow, that was hilarious. <laughs> well, I mean, with three hosts, one of them's got to be funny, I'm just saying. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Credits is a local movie show for local movie fans. We are here every Wednesday at 3 p.m. to talk the latest in pop culture and review the newest movies, which this week will be the new psychological neo-noir thriller, Nightmare Alley, which you can stream on either Disney Plus or you can get it on any VOD platform. So, uh, technically, and this may surprise some people, uh, Nightmare Alley is a remake. And uh, I believe it was 1947 it was originally made. And it starred Tyrone Power. So, kind of one of the, one of the biggest and brightest of early Hollywood. That's a great name, too. Oh, it's a fantastic Tyrone Power. Yeah, Yeah, you never forget it. Uh, But Tim had the idea, since we're talking about a remake in the review, we should tackle other remakes for the first half of the show, some of the greatest remakes of all time. And I have to admit, uh, when I sat down to think about what I thought were the all-time greatest remakes, uh, (laughs) they were all horror movies. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so I had to... um, I had to sort of uh more kind of like level out the expectations of what being a a goat is um just so i can have a little more spice a little more variety on this list because otherwise it would be uh all horror all the time which um i know some people would enjoy but uh you know uh we we try to we try to shine a light on all different types of movies here so we do yeah and i'm I'm not the biggest horror buff, but mm-hmm. even I had a bunch probably on my, and on my list of three, I have one that is, and one that's, you know, a dark comedy horror as well. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's a genre that gets remade a lot, just so popular. And um, I think people have short memories who like horror movies too. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> oh, screams out. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's this new movie Scream. Technically not a remake. It's a continuation, but I know what you mean. So uh, we've each prepared three. And Tim, uh, since it was your idea, why don't you start us off with your first pick? Yeah. So so like you, Adam, um, I was thinking like the greatest remakes, but then I went more with what my favorite remakes were Mm -hmm. instead of like, thinking, okay, this is the greatest movie ever made or anything like that. Um, honorable mention to the departed Martin Mm. Scorsese didn't make my list. I wanted to choose ones where I'd seen the original and the original for that. I started watching and haven't finished it yet. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) infernal affairs, it's a Mm -hmm. good movie, but the departed, I think it's kind of 
underrated. Actually, it won the best picture, and a lot of people say, oh, it's a lesser Scorsese. They just gave it to him yeah. um, for that career completion, but I think, I think it's an excellent movie. Mm-hmm. But I digress on that. Number three on my list is Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 1978 version. Mm-hmm. So a horror movie um, uh, before Hollywood uh, remade every popular horror film it could get its hands on. Uh, Philip Kaufman uh, took this horror classic from the 1950s, and I think he made it even creepier and scarier than the one from 1956. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 1956 f- film, uh, directed by Don Siegel, starred Kevin McCar- McCarthy, and it was taking place during the McCarthy era. So it was kind of ironic that the lead actor's name is McCarthy. Mm-hmm. And I think the 56 movie is probably a better, better picture, um, but they had to compromise the ending. Um, the ending was very groundbreaking and shocking, but they had to compromise it because the studio wanted to soften the blow for viewers in the, at the time in the mid fifties. Mm-hmm. Um, but the good thing about invasion of the body snatchers, the seventies version is Philip Kaufman didn't have those same challenges. Mm-hmm. So he could really focus on, on the pod people. Um, and he took the setting, which in the original was a conservative small town in California, and he put it into San Francisco mm-hmm. in the 1970s. And it's health-obsessed San Francisco, and the plot involves human beings being substituted by duplicates of themselves, which are aliens without human emotions. And what really, I think... I don't know if, like I said, I don't know if the 70s movie is better than the 50s movies, but what makes it different, and I think it makes it so appealing, is the casting and the performances. Um, Mm -hmm. Because it's like a motley crew of eccentrics in this movie. (laughs) You have Donald Sutherland, Leonard Nimoy, Jeff Goldblum, and all those guys could be aliens for all I know. Yeah, Um, exactly. And it doesn't, uh, and it's just missing probably like Christopher Walken. (laughs) <laughs> Probably would have been good, in it. but I was that would have been up. too Na- much. Yeah, yeah. 1978, he was doing the Deer Hunter, so it's probably a better choice for him at the time. But it just <laughs> seems like it just just all these eccentrics in San Francisco. Um, a lot of the characters are um, psychiatrists, struggling actors, people who are into mud baths and health. Um, you know, all this sort of like health concerns and it's very interesting. Um, and you almost are cheering for those people to avoid the conformity of becoming pod people because mm-hmm. they're such interesting characters, such fun to watch that when they become pod people, yeah, it, it really, um, really takes you away from their characters, which is the intent to show the conformity of becoming a pod person. Um, and the, the ending for this is terrific, uh, for the seventies version, the fifties version, they had to compromise the sound. It would have been a really terrifying ending, but they had to compromise mm-hmm. this one. This one is terrifying. And, uh, you won't forget the final scream after you see it. So mm-hmm. it's just a, I think an excellent horror movie with just weirdo performances, a real great cult movie. And, uh, a different take and that's what i like and on my list i have movies that are like different takes on the original 
Um, mm. So it's sort of hard to really compare. And yeah, I really, I really like this. And I'd say seek it out to anybody who can find uh, the 1978 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Mm-hmm. It kind of presages the 80s too. This idea that you know uh, everything's fine now, so just you know act <laughs> like it, which we get into in one of my picks. Um, my first pick is not as serious, um, but it's a lot of fun. It's The Mummy, the 1999 Stephen Sommers remake of the Boris Karloff classic. It doesn't try to be a horror movie like the original Mummy. It's more in the vein of uh, adventure, action adventure. It's uh, like an Indiana Jones movie, but um, it's also very much like a sort of classic, um, sort of like these matinee kind of kids movies, uh, you know, f- maybe from the, the, the 50s, not the 50s, but maybe like the 60s, 70s, you know, you go out and have an afternoon, take the kids to something where, you know, they can thrill, but it's also entertaining for the adults as well. Um, it's Brendan Fraser as uh, in his prime as uh, the, the adventurer, Rick O'Connell, who's leading this expedition to find the lost Egyptian city of the dead. Uh, he has great chemistry with Rachel Weiss as the archeologist, um, the Egyptologist, a lot of really great actors and small roles. Um, Kevin, uh, Kevin J. O'Connor, who uh, is a frequent collaborator with Stephen Summers, um, plays like this hench weasel who uh, <laughs> whose loyalties come with a price. Um, but he's just so funny. He's, he's so oily and he's so kind of self-aware of how opportunistic and oily he is. It's a lot of fun. And he has a lot of great back and forth with Brendan Fraser, too. The effects, I have to say, are terribly dated. It looks like a PlayStation game now by comparison uh but i i find that it's it's dated in a good way kind of like the um well maybe not exactly because that is uh craft but you know if you think about jason and the argonauts and like kind of other classic adventure movies that had state-of-the-art stop-motion animation for the time um you know sometimes yeah the effects don't match the the long-term legacy but uh the cast is so great and there's a lot of great lines and it's really it's still really enjoyable and really well executed and uh yeah so it's a fun time it's still a fun time i think and uh it's 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 a great way to (laughs) i was gonna say it's a great way to kill an afternoon which may may not (laughs) (laughs) but i mean it's 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 one of those movies where if you're flipping just looking for something to watch and it's kind of on tv and or if it's like something that comes up on your Netflix queue or wherever it is, you can, you know, put it on and enjoy it. And that's, that's uh, sometimes all you need from a movie. So uh, yeah. check it. Mommy's worth revisiting. I think. Yeah, I think it used to be on TV a lot. I remember back. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It was a go-to. Yeah. All right. Let's get to number two. Okay. Number two on my list is Scarface from 1983. <laughs> yeah uh, used to be i probably like a lot of people uh, it used to be my favorite probably my favorite film of all time um from the age of probably 16 to 21 mm-hmm. uh, that checks loved, out yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> i loved uh it was brian de palma's scarface and it was written by oliver stone and he's got his fingerprints all over it really yeah um and i used to have the poster of al pacino with the machine gun 
Yep, on wall of my dorm room. A lot of people for, did. Yeah. First year of university, so that checks out too. <laughs> that checks out. Yeah. I was probably about 15 or 16 when I first saw it, and it blew my mind at the time. Um, it wasn't until years later that I saw the original 1932 gangster movie, which was based on the life of Al Capone. Mm-hmm. It's directed by Howard Hawks and produced by Howard Hughes. So it was all growed up when I saw that one, and I appreciated it, and I thought it was you know, a great great gangster movie and i think it's definitely a movie i would recommend it's black and white from the 30s sometimes i'm apprehensive watching a really old movie like 1932 because i think oh it might be creaky but this Mm. one really stands up Mm. um but i probably didn't see that until i was maybe in my 30s um (laughs) but the original scarface or not the original the 1980 the 1983 scarface um it's completely different and it starts, it takes uh, the 1980 mass exodus of Cubans to the United States as its jumping off point. And, uh, and we see Tony Montana, mm-hmm. probably most people know Tony Montana played by Al Pacino. Uh, the one thing he has in common with uh, Al Capone is he has a scar on his face mm-hmm. and that's called Scarface. And we see him entering the country and you see that he's filled Unlike um, a lot of his friends who, who come from Cuba, he, he sort of, he's calculating, he's impulsive, and he's very ambitious. Um, mm. And he wants to cr- uh, climb that criminal ladder, you know, gain the fortune, women, and respect. Uh, and the movie is filled with a lot of stuff that teenage boys like. Um, mm. Graphic violence, uh, cocaine, um, sex, and it's, it's played on an operatic scale. Mm-hmm. And the one scene uh, that I think was very divisive when it first came out, and I've read some reviews from back then, is the chainsaw scene. Um, it's probably one of the most disturbing scenes uh, in a mainstream movie uh, where the, um, Tony Montana and his uh, criminal colleague are held captive and one's attacked with a chainsaw. Mm-hmm. Um but I don't feel that was gratuitous because I think it just <laughs> serves to show it serves to really fuel the anger. And it really shows the fearlessness too, of the Tony Montana character. He goes through all this, all these near death experiences and he just keeps striving for more and more. And he steeps, keeps getting wilder and wilder. And Al Pacino is just, you know, crazy in the performance. It's a wild performance, but I think it serves its, it serves the movie well. Um, mm. I think probably a lot of criticism back then, probably now today, if a movie like this was made, it would be, oh, this is way over the top. You can't be that over the top. But I think sometimes you have to be, and he's perfect in that role. And there's just so many great supporting roles as well. It was a breakthrough movie for Michelle Pfeiffer, mm-hmm. um, who played Elvira Hancock, who's a coke addict who you can tell is like too smart for the mob life but she's too depressed really to get out of it uh until there's that that great scene um where they're they're having dinner Mm -hmm. and uh tony montana is just really verbally abusive and she can't take it anymore and she leaves Mm -hmm. and then he says say good night to the bad guy right (laughs) to her and the assemble all the assembled fine diners uh so that was, yeah, that was, that was an amazing scene. I just think it's chock full of amazing scenes and 
so many great actors involved too that maybe we take for granted in the movie because um mm. f murray abraham mm-hmm. plays a supporting role and the next year he would win the best actor oscar for amadeus mm-hmm. and then robert loggia which i love watching him and stuff he's just excellent character actor and most people know him for doing the piano scene in big and mm-hmm. using lost highway mm-hmm. and then steven bauer <laughs> as the best friend like this is such an amazing movie for him and then he sort of fell off the map doing like direct-to-video movies after this mm-hmm. but but luckily his career's been uh, revived through uh through breaking bad better call saul ray donovan a lot of uh, tv work so that's good and then uh, mary elizabeth mastriono um just amazing as gina montana Mm-hmm. And then she would go on to do The Color of Money the next year. But I just think just excellent movie. It's one of these movies, too, that's over three hours, and but it still grabs your attention. You know, <laughs> you're excited the whole movie. Could be because there was like, I think, like a record setting number of F-bombs in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just a lot of great quotes that people still say to the, to today, you know. Yeah. And it's so weird that... <sighs> I mean, it's so different from <laughs> the original Scarface. I you barely think of it as a remake at all. Uh, for my number two, um, not as well known as Scarface, but it is uh, a very it, it has a great cast, uh, great performances too, and also pretty violent. Uh, Three Ten to Yuma, which uh, th- this remake was directed by James Mangold, who people probably know better from his Wolverine movies. But um, before that, I think right before that, this is his uh, the the last. I was going to say the last real movie he did before going into <laughs> the comic book movie business. Um, it, it's about uh, a rancher, this down on his luck rancher, played by Christian Bale. Uh, who's basically the one man in town who is willing to stick his neck out to see that this uh, uh, gang leader played by Russell Crowe is put on a train to uh, the three, the, the titular 310 to Yuma to uh, jail in the Arizona territory after a stagecoach robbery. Um, of course, the, the rancher is not doing this because he's this, um, you know, upstanding uh, good guy, uh, an exemplar. He's doing what's right because it's what's right. He's basically doing it for the money. His ranch is underwater. Um, his son, uh, played by a youngish Logan Lerman, uh, is, does not have much respect for him. Actually has more respect for the gangster played by Crow. But uh, through the course of the movie, uh, seeing Bale's uh, rancher uh, basically basically end up as the last man standing, not because everyone else who, who's taking Crow to the train gets killed, but because uh, the character Dan, who's, who's played by Bale, is sort of like the last man to uh, to continue to stand um, w- with integrity. Uh, he's the he's the last man who will make sure that uh, Russell's Russell Crowe's gang leader is put on that train. And uh, it is, uh, it, I was going to say, it's kind of like, a, you know, it's, it's, it's not played for all this like manliness, macho idealism, but you know, it is, uh, it, it is of a piece of that, that, you know, this, the idea that uh, 
one good man can stand against the the deluge do what's right um russell crowe's gang is chasing them all through the movie trying to uh free russell crowe and uh the ending is so perfect the ending is pitch perfect it doesn't pull any punches it's uh but it's a great drama it's great seeing like two great actors um at the top of their game go against each other and with bale and evan uh bale and um crow and uh i don't think enough can be said about ben foster as uh crow's uh second in command (laughs) and he's just so like dirty through the whole movie and he's so greasy and he's so grimy um you can practically smell him in the audience watching him in the audience it is such a it's such a great um great bad guy performance just just to look at him you know he's bad news so uh everything just works with 310 to yuma it is a great uh great watch it's great it's got good action the stagecoach robbery is really well staged um but it's also uh, a great dramatic performance too it's it's a great uh actor piece as well that's a great movie yeah and the original is really good too that's an example mm-hmm. where they mm-hmm. could probably keep making that every 10 years or so and <laughs> i keep watching it yeah you yeah. may be right all right so number three yeah well number one I'm, i was going back but i said well, it's number one whatever yeah but whatever it's, we know uh, we know what we mean it's in the three um little shop of horrors uh, 1986 yes <laughs> yeah i saw it as a kid and had a lasting effect on me um i I saw the 1960 Roger Corman movie a lot more recently than that. Mm-hmm. And it's a really funny movie and it's w- well known because Jack Nicholson, young Jack Nicholson was in it in 1960 and he plays a masochistic dental patient. Mm-hmm. And you can see the clip online. There's like a four minute clip with him, which is hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, the 1986 version really a pitch black comedy musical um, based on an off Broadway musical that mm-hmm. was based on the original movie. Um, so the off Broadway musical is in the early eighties, 1982. And then this movie came out 86 and it's just a great movie. It's uh, directed by Frank Oz. Mm-hmm. He's done a ton of movies. He started off as a puppeteer in for the Muppets and he's gone on to have quite the Hollywood career. And I just love everything about the movie. I love the bloodthirsty Venus flytrap, uh, the songs <laughs> like down on skid row, feed me Seymour. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the ones that are a, a little more dramatic, like somewhere that's green, suddenly Seymour. I'd really like the music. Um, you can see why it's been staged so often for live performances. Um, but this movie version, if you haven't seen it, I'd say, check it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rick Moranis and Ellen green are perfectly cast as Seymour and Audrey, uh, shy, awkward, sensitive souls who are meant for each other. And then Levi Stubbs as the voice of um, Audrey 2, which is what <laughs> Seymour names uh, the Venus flytrap. He's, he's, mm-hmm. he's awesome in that role. He was a lead vocalist for the Motown group, The Four Tops. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he's definitely has some vocal talent and he's just, He's just awesome, whether it's doing singing songs or talking in that gravelly voice as the Venus flytrap. And just the puppetry is awesome, too. Um, it, so it's a lot of fun to watch. 
I really liked the one character that really stuck with me that I thought was hilarious and deeply disturbing was Steve Martin's dentist Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, playing the sadistic dentist. Great musical performances. He's got like this Elvis vibe to him and he's just very sadistic. (laughs) And I think Steve Martin's done so many great things in movies, uh, so many hilarious performances, but this is right up there, even though it's more of a supporting role. Mm-hmm. I, I I just think he's just yeah just the delight he takes and then he uh, meets his foil when Bill Murray mm-hmm. who's uh, reprises the Jack Nicholson character he plays the masochist um, dental patient he does a great job and that's like <laughs> so frustrating for the dentist that his patient's actually enjoying the pain he's inflicting on him. <laughs> <laughs> it's just such dark comedy, but it's just, it's funny and it's really heartfelt as well. Like there's a great romance at the center of it. Mm-hmm. And I think I like it better than West side story. So there you mm-hmm. go. Um, Cause mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I like the romance. I think the romance, maybe I like the romance and um, it's just a lot more fun. Mm-hmm. So I, I, that would be my number one on my list of remakes would be Little Shop of Horrors from 1986. Yeah, and there's so many people in there you recognize, like Rick Moranis and Steve Martin, but also, yeah, Bill Murray. Christopher Guest is in that, too, if I'm remembering correctly. So. I think so, yeah. yeah. A lot. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's a great choice. Uh, my number one uh, is uh, The Thing. John Carpenter's remake of the thing from another, is it another world or another planet? I can't remember which, but um, it was this 1950s movie. It was kind of, you know, uh, stolid for the time, obviously. So you get uh, John Carpenter getting to go all out with his remake, uh, which features really great practical effects for the alien. Um, really still seamless to this day um given some of the just crazy stuff they're they're trying to do with it um kurt russell uh have having fully made the transition to sort of action star and uh, adult performer uh john carpenter in the middle of what's pretty much a, like a consistent sweep of successes from assault on precinct 13 to well, he had a couple of years left after this, but, you know, it's right, right in the middle of this run where you get Halloween, Elvis, The Fog, Escape from New York, The Thing, um, Starman, uh, Christine as well. So, like, he's, he's, like, at the top of his power. Um, great cast of character actors. It really taps into this thing that was happening in the early 80s, as well as... Um, um, especially the summer of 82, there were so many great sci-fi movies that were technically not successful, but were actually very, very successful in terms of setting a tone. Um, you know, things like Blade Runner mm-hmm. as well. So it, it's, it taps into this paranoia of the time. It taps into the resurgence of Cold War anxieties. It taps into this idea that, um, hey, it's the 80s and everything's fun again and everything's cool. And, and the movie is basically saying, no, we're, we've, we've still got some really pretty major concerns. I, I don't know if I can trust you. <laughs> and yeah, it's like trust plays into it. Power dynamics play into it. And the end um, 
it it is one of the maybe one of the great all time movie endings. Uh, it's it's got such great ambiguity. It's like, did they kill the thing? Um, is one of them the thing? And yeah. which one is the thing? If one of them is the thing, and it's such a it's such a great movie ending. Um, it's kind of a shell shock when it's over and the credits start rolling. It's like, wait, that's it. Uh, so yeah, uh, the thing is definitely definitely still worth checking out if it has not been checked out already. So yeah, it became a great great cult movie, like a lot of John Carpenter movies, right? Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Uh, we're gonna have to take that uh, there, though. We're gonna move on. We are gonna talk about this week's ultimate remake. Well. Uh, for this week, anyway, we're going to talk about Nightmare Alley after the break. You are listening to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus, and Community Radio. Doctor. Mr. Carla. What's that? Your half. That's split, 50-50. Not interested. I got what I wanted. But you should have seen him. My God. I think they'll be talking about that the rest of his life. I think every time they tell it, it'll just get better and better, bigger and bigger. Toast, then, to your success. Uh, he asked me to uh, see one of his friends. And who might that be? He didn't say, but I'm considering it. I'll tell you what, you got a safe? I do. Why don't you keep this for me? I don't want Molly to know about it anyway. Why don't you keep it for a few days? If you change your mind, we'll split it 50-50. And if not, I'll keep it. You barely know me. Oh, I know you well. And that was a clip from Nightmare Alley. It is a new film from Guillermo del Toro, and it stars Bradley Cooper, Kate Blanchett, Tony Collette, Willem Dafoe, Richard Jenkins, Rooney Mara, Ron Perlman, and David Strathairn. So, I mean, I think that uh, automatically speaks to uh, what makes a quality remake is... Uh, just jamming in as many great actors as you possibly can. <laughs> no part is too big. No uh, role is too small. So, yeah. So Nightmare Alley, Tim, uh, why why did going into Nightmare Alley appeal to you? Yeah, thanks, Adam. Well, it appealed to me uh, because it's gotten some rave reviews and it's nominated for the Oscar for Best Picture. So I wanted to check it out. Mm-hmm. Um and a few months ago, I watched the original 1947 film noir on the Criterion channel. Uh, yeah, and that's a great movie. A downfall of that is I knew pretty much everything that was going to happen in, <laughs> in this version. 
-hmm. and it was still kind of fresh in my memory. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think uh, Guillermo del Toro, I think he's going more for atmosphere over suspense anyway. So Mm -hmm. I really, I really liked I really liked uh, that aspect of the movie was the atmosphere to it. Mm-hmm. I think even if I hadn't seen the original, it would have been predictable. I think in certain, yeah. Yeah. In certain, you know, it's like, he's not really going, like I said, for the suspense, it's more like you can see what's going to happen, but it's just, how is it played out? How is it played out with the camera work, atmosphere, music, and the performances? Um, two things I really liked were the opening I thought it, uh, the opening shots with uh, Bradley Cooper's character, Stan Carlyle, where he's, he's burning the wrapped body and burning down the house. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought create, creates that atmosphere. Uh, it really draws you in along with the music. And that followed up by like the panning shots of the carnival. And then we're introduced to that supporting cast that you mentioned. You, mm-hmm. you see Willem Dafoe, Ron Perlman, all this cast of characters who, who fit well in that carnival milieu, you see all that <laughs> and you're uh, kind, kind of drawn in by it. Um, as the movie went on though, I wasn't as, as taken with it. Um, but, and then, but then the ending I thought was really powerful, even though I could predict, I think a lot of people could predict what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the acting by Bradley Cooper as Stan Carlisle, I thought was maybe the strongest at the very end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, up until that point, I, I felt his character was a bit rushed. It sort of went from like, he starts off as this drifter who you're almost like, is he mute or is he going to say something mm-hmm. um, to this, you know, expert sort of operator and manipulator uh, of people. And they, I think to me, it was a bit rushed how he got, got there. And I think it almost had to be rushed because the movie is two and a half hours. So <laughs> <laughs> don't have a lot of room to play with. Um, and it has a lot of, it has the same plot line as the original. So it goes through a lot, very episodic and, you know, introducing the psychiat- psychiatrist or psychologist at in the middle of the Kate Blanchett character. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the same as in the original. So you're introducing like, major characters halfway through. So mm-hmm. I think you had to, ru- he had to rush some of the elements. So in, in that respect, when it comes to the Stan Carlisle, I wasn't too convinced by his character until the movie dragged on as the movie sort of gained some momentum. I, I was a little more taken. And then at the end, I thought it was a powerful performance at the very end. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it does, it does take you to a time and place and a really weird unusual setting that you don't usually see um and takes you behind the curtain on you know these carnival acts and um the tricks behind these acts and mentalism and so it's i really like the atmosphere of it as as a movie um as a movie where for suspense purposes i wouldn't say i was that drawn to it um Mm. but i think it is an achievement for filmmaking and the way it's all put together um it's very entertaining uh but it didn't didn't really uh you know it didn't really capture me from like an emotional perspective or anything like that so Mm. I mean, that's, I mean, I think that's all fair. I I will agree. Having not been aware of 
the original book or the original film um, in terms of like the plot detail, it was very predictable. It was always going where exactly where you thought it was going. Um, I disagree that I felt anything was rushed. If anything, I feel like Del Toro likes to like, let us sort of luxuriate in these settings and in this buildup Um you get the sense like very like there is that long period at the beginning where the Bradley Cooper character just doesn't speak. And you're like, is he mute? Is he, it's like, there's something wrong with him. That's I mean, I mean, that's kind of like the barometer of the character though, that, you know, as he gets more comfortable in this world and as he's learning like the tricks of the trade from the, uh, the David Strathairn character, the mentalist, and he's getting more comfortable, um, that's kind of the signal that he's kind of advancing along in, in terms of his abilities as a manipulator, as, as um, you know, eventually the guy who has the, the sold out shows and, and is doing mentalism. He's, you're basically watching the character gain confidence um, all through the movie. Because, I mean, at some point, that, that confidence also also turns sour and it becomes so high in his own supply, he thinks he can basically get away with anything. But you, you, you do see those signposts in the film um, as he's, you know, talk, as, as, like he's getting the, the, the tricks of the trade from Pete, the, the Strathairn character. And then he tries to sneak a peek at the book, <laughs> the, the, yeah. the great book of mentalist tricks. And and Strathairn warns them about you know what can happen if you abuse the power, and then um, there's the scene where the police arrive to bust up the Geek Act, um, and he basically is a- he's able to k- take one glance at the warrant, see the sheriff's name, and get everything he needs to start pushing the sheriff um, to to get out of the the warrant to get out of the, the police action. And then you, you cut from that to they're having this celebration. And now he's like explaining to uh, the Willem Dafoe character, just like how, how easily he was able to like manipulate the sheriff and all those, all the signs he saw, all the cues he picked up on. And you, 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 you immediately click like, Oh, now he's the, you know, he was once a learner. Now he is the master. <laughs> and so yeah. it's, 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 it's the, it's the performance that sort of lets you in because you, you watch that confidence built. And then at the end, as um, he ends up the fool, um, of course, there, there's that line that Kate Blanchett says, you know, you don't fool people, people fool themselves. And so you see that denouement, you see the reverse happen where he's goes from the guy who thinks he can control the universe um, to essentially becoming mute again at the end before the final uh, before the final twist, which is it's definitely not worth spoiling. I mean, it's all again, it's very predictable, but the power in the final twist is all in the performance and the way the camera hangs on Bradley yeah. Cooper as as um as it's happening. And I mean, just if you don't know that Bradley Cooper, is a great actor watch these last two minutes as he's acting with his eyes and then acting with his like his performance and with his um expressions because they're you see two different emotions going on at the same time and it is so it is so subtle and it's so brilliant he is a really great actor and 
that if, if nothing else in this movie reminds you of that, although he does. I mean, it does great with like his matinee idol. Good looks. He has this like Cary Grant mustache in the in the city scenes. And he's definitely wearing these like Tyrone power, like pinstripe suits that uh, look so good. Mm-hmm. Um, but Bradley Cooper as an actor, the last two minutes of this movie, that is an Oscar winning performance. I don't know if he will win because as, as I said, we we're recording before the Oscars. I'm not sure um, if, if I, because I, I haven't seen all the performance. I'm not sure if he deserves to win, but I mean, those last two minutes are Oscar worthy. I think. Yeah. I think the last two minutes for sure. Um, yeah. C- kind of what I was getting at is it's almost like the movie could have been a little bit longer because it's mm. like he ingre- ingratiates himself. So, so easily early on. And maybe that's just because of his good looks. Cause mm. I know they like, they, um, they he's like good his good looks, man. right? Yeah. He's a good looking um, man. So maybe that's it. But like he goes from like not saying a word to all of a sudden they're inviting him into their homes and all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. And I, I see what you're saying. It's totally like that's the that's the character. He's there in silence, figuring stuff out, mm-hmm. figuring when he can make his move kind of thing. Uh, so, yeah, I get that. It was just that at the beginning, it's like he goes from like not saying a word to all of a sudden he's like part of their part of their whole culture there and a lot of that i think has to do with his looks. so it was probably good that somebody like bradley cooper played <laughs> played this role um although during the movie it's like sometimes i like to see somebody who's a little off kilter in a role like that but mm. i guess that's that's it there he's the good looking matinee idol so they're they're playing off of that and I, I agree with you at the very end and like the camera work the close-up on him the um his acting Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's terrific. So it makes what is like a very predictable, you know, circumstance there. It, it just gives it that much more power. Mm-hmm. So I agree with that. And mm-hmm. there have been a lot of great movies like that where you can see everything coming. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, there maybe there aren't a lot like that, but you see everything coming. But then the performances really drive it home. So mm-hmm. and yeah, this cast this cast was very good and you're like no role too small because mm-hmm. there are a lot of different smaller roles and i richard jenkins who's becoming like a favorite of guillermo del toro mm-hmm. um i thought was excellent i could watch this guy act all day <laughs> um i think he comes from a theater background so it makes a mm-hmm. lot of sense mm-hmm. but like as the um he's like this sort of like criminal type right he's like this Mm-hmm. who uh who uh ha- is living with regret because he had forced mm. a young lady into having an abortion and i think it killed her i think and it's it, 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 she died in the process yeah and it killed her so then yeah they recreate that scene and that's in the original too but i think in this one it's even better because because of that performance mm-hmm. uh, yeah by richard jenkins yeah, he's I mean, it's not really explicitly said like what he does or how he's become sort of like this rich, powerful man. Um, my impression is he's kind of shady if he's not like an out and out criminal. He's kind of got criminal leanings. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's because Richard Jenkins has such like a, a trustworthy face. Um, <laughs> it, 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 you know, it. 
it helps sell the kind of villainy. One of the one of the remakes I was considering for our list was Let Me In, which was a, uh, the American remake of Let the Right One In. And, and in that, Richard Jenkins plays the the vampire's keeper who's like going out in in the night and um, killing people and draining them of their blood. And then, you know, it's just the, the sad sack Richard Jenkins being like this merciless killer um, because he has to. And in this, there's a nightmare alley. There's this kind of inference that he's um, the things that are driving him are not necessarily as, as altruistic as getting, you know, feeding a vampire girl. It's, it's you know, he's, he's done some really tor- horrible things to make himself um, a powerful and, and rich man. Um, and he's like kind of getting near to the end of his life and he's like facing all these regrets, but he's still this, essentially this horror show of, of a man which is you know which adds to like that scene where he he's having this seance with um stan and uh it does let's say the seance does not go as planned and uh he suddenly uh, the, the jenkins character finds himself enraged he finds that part of himself that has no regret for the awful things he does and is um you know kind of just it, it, it takes on this rage yeah and, and it's yeah. it's so believable and even though it's richard jenkins who seems like your nice kindly grandpa but um yeah. in that moment he is like really frightening and uh you can believe how what wh- how and why stan would have the reaction that he does <laughs> yeah yeah he has to he has to protect himself mm-hmm and probably mainly himself. Um, yeah. Molly's there too, but I think he cares more about himself, obviously. Yeah. 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 I don't think she matters at that point, unfortunately, but yeah. uh, at least in, in terms of, because I, I think he, at that point, he doesn't really care about Molly. He cares about getting, it, it becomes, it's, it's the whole ethos of one last score. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> one last score and we're out. <laughs> yeah like yeah why yeah why does he have to do this yeah it's just the greed in him Mm -hmm. right that he has to get that much more money Mm -hmm. yeah yeah because he could disappear into the night and and they could both disappear and i mean that's kind of the era it was uh i mean the last scene i think it literally takes place on december 7th um 1941 so like there's a lot going on at the time so he (laughs) uh because there's there's a scene of hold mcnary um listening to uh listening to the the radio show um or the rate the the radio promoting the interruption for a a a special speech from fdr about the response to the pearl harbor attack so it's it's like right on the cusp of america like entering world war ii so they could have disappeared into the night and never have to worry about Richard Jenkins ever again, but it's, it's the allure, the one last score and we're out and mm-hmm. it's always the downfall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's, there are references. Yeah. To like Nazi Germany and stuff early on in the film. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. There's the articles. <laughs> there's the line where there were Willem Dafoe says, yeah, that guy with the chaplain mustache just went into <laughs> Where was it like Austria or no Czechoslovakia? Maybe yeah, it was yeah. I think it was like the start of the yeah Poland. It was the start. It was the start of the war for everyone else except for the United States. But yeah, Um, yeah. It's it. 
the performances are so great. So, and, and I, I don't want to mitigate the, the filmmaking craft as well, which is incredible. Um, like the beginning scenes in the carnival are sort of like Del Toro gets to like luxuriate in his, um, his sort of desire for that, like perfectly designed <laughs> world. So he gets yeah. to like craft this carnival to look exactly how a carnival looks like in Guillermo del Toro's mind. The rest of the movie though, I mean, I it's, it's, it hews very much to sort of like the existing architecture and it, it makes beautiful use of like these really old buildings and neighborhoods and Buffalo yeah. and Toronto and Hamilton. Um, so there's a real kind of a, a feeling of kind of a real world, to this at the same time though i really like the cinematography because a lot of the great film noir is always in black and white Mm -hmm. and this isn't in black and white although from what i understand they have they've done what a lot of films do now where they release a kind of a black and white version which i kind of think is silly but um you get this you still get this kind of very monochromatic um feeling and and it's like every scene kind of has its like particular color grade, which I found interesting. Like the, they're outside in the, the winter and it says like kind of this dark bluish hue. And then they go back to the hotel and it's this kind of like golden orange yeah. um, feeling. And then in the psychiatrist office, this is kind of like green hue. It's each, each one of these scenes kind of have like their own distinctive feel, but it all feels part of like the same, um, the, the same sort of like mix uh, uh, part of also all part of the same kind of style book in the movie, but each, I, I really like that, how it, it, it was just noticeable enough that it didn't distract you, but you definitely felt, felt it that every scene kind of has its own distinctive uh, visual palette and flavor. Yeah. He definitely brings that to the table. Cause you're watching, watching this. And like I said, from the opening, I, I was drawn in and mm-hmm. especially the carnival, Mm-hmm. scenes just like like you're saying it's his idea of a carnival so it's like that perfect <laughs> sort of illusion it's an illusion of a carnival mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and how his camera's just tracking all throughout the the festivities there mm-hmm. I, I i thought that was yeah i thought that was really interesting to, to watch mm-hmm. and I, I think um yeah, I think that's that definitely definitely what he brings to the table, and like I think the acting can sometimes get lost in that, right? Because I don't mm-hmm. think a lot of these actors are up for awards for this film because um, mm-hmm. it's seen as like the director's film, right? But yeah, um, I thought Rooney Mara was excellent as Molly, mm-hmm. and Kate Blanchett really good as Lilith Ritter. She's so um, good. Yeah, uh, yeah, and it really takes the movie in a different to a different place, this whole sort of psychological Mm -hmm. uh, place later on. And it's very episodic, uh, which I think works for the the movie. Um, Yeah. Yeah. This one. It's nicely I would like broken to see up, him. Yeah. I would like to see Guillermo del Toro. The more I think about, it, just shoot something just in a carnival, though. <laughs> just, <laughs> just stay there, you know. Uh, yeah, it's. I, I feel that too, but I, I, I feel like his tastes are. And I think his next film is a Pinocchio movie, which I don't get, but you know, I'll, you know what, I'll watch it. But the, the, yeah. you know, this in the Shape of Water is very much like set in these like kind of real world settings. Um, granted, in the Shape of Water, there is a like a sea creature, but 
it is dealing with like very real emotions and very real feelings and like the very real awfulness of like those times in the early 60s um there's not so much like a supernatural element in nightmare alley but the veneer is still kind of there it is interesting just to sort of see how his um his tastes have sort of shifted in the last couple of years going from more these like kind of blatantly fantasy and fantastic worlds like things like chronos or mimic or hellboy into like movies where he's it really feels like he's trying to get a, a firm sense of time and place and where he's really trying to say something and at, at the same time though it is a shame because the performances really do make this and i was just looking at the uh the the list of nominations now yeah it's all technical it's best picture it's cinematography it's costume design production design all well earned um all worthy of nomination but uh yeah i mean bradley cooper and kate blatchett especially like she is really good she's really good at channeling some sort of inner 40s matinee idol and i was thinking a lot about her her performance as Catherine hepburn and the aviator where she yeah. really kind of steps into that world and feels like she's a part of it. And, and she's tapping into a lot of that here too. And uh, I could have done with more Kate Blanchett. I could always do with more Kate Blanchett, but um, I think she really relished the performance. Like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. As being the sort of femme fatale, but not, not, not your usual femme fatale. Like she, yeah. has she has she... a lot of power in this movie that, and a lot of, she comes on to that very kind of like slowly. It's like it, she becomes a more fatal as the movie goes along. And um, you almost, you almost cheer for her a bit because, you know, Stan is clearly like a man on the hustle. So you kind of almost want to see him taken down a peg and in comes Kate Blanchett. And you're like, yeah, take him down. <laughs> <laughs> it's so bizarre it's so it's so good but yeah this yeah. this is i mean del toro rightly deserves a lot of accolades for um for the visuals but this is also an actor's movie too and i it it kind of feels like that's kind of been forgotten some of the discourse of around the movie yeah i, I would i would think so mm-hmm. um and are all also it's just like you said there's so many roles in this movie too right and then Kate Blanchett doesn't come in till halfway through the movie so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's kind of one of one of those things where probably if anybody was going to be nominated it'd be Bradley Cooper yeah maybe Kate Blanchett too but yeah because she's in for about half the movie but Bradley Bradley Cooper um but I think he deserves a uh, nomination just for this and licorice pizza combined <laughs> he should be nominated be a special was- award it was, you just give him a special award. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah it's kind of weird. It's going to be like one of those things where it's going to be his 10th nomination and they're going to be like, oh, just give it to him already. It's it's going to be like the it, he's he's like the next he's a new Kate Winslet where he's going to get so many Oscar nominations. We're just going to say, oh, for God's sake, just give it to him. Yeah. But um, <laughs> we'll have to leave it there. Um, if Bradley Cooper wants more career advice, he knows where to find us. Uh, yeah, we can help him out. <laughs> that's it for this week's show we hope you liked it if you want to listen to it again you can find us on our website endcreditsradioshow.com you can download us from the Guelph Politicast channel every Friday at Podbean or you can get it through your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn and Spotify and when you're on Spotify you can find the playlist for much of the music that you hear on the show 
just open up Spotify and search for End Credits on CFRU. You can find us on social media. We're on Facebook at End Credits Radio Show, and we're on Twitter at End Credits Radio. And Tim, where can people find you on the internet? Hey, you can find me Flash in the Deadpan on social media, or um, if you want to Google Flash in the Deadpan, Tim Phillips, find the website. And feel free to reach out. Let me know what your favorite remakes of all time are. <laughs> whether they horror movies or not and i will be back here tomorrow on cfru thursday at 5 p.m for news and politics on open sources guelph with scotty hertz in the meantime i'm on twitter and instagram at adam a donaldson and you can find my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca and stay tuned for more great programming here on cfru 93.3 fm cfru.ca guelph campus and community radio We'll be back next Wednesday at 3 p.m. for another edition of End Credits, and we will see you then. Bye.